Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. This is a story, familiar story of the rich young ruler. We know him to be a young man from Matthew's account. Follows immediately after the incident with the infants that were brought to Jesus. Those children and infants that were brought to the Savior were not a digression or a sideshow. Because in the Gospels, we find a, a countercultural positivity of Jesus towards the children. When he feels, feeds the multitude, for example, we're specifically told that there were children there. He heals a child. He tells his followers to be like children. It's the children who recognize him to be the son of David and who shout their hosannas as he enters in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He shows mercy to them. He points to their miraculous insight, and he urges us to imitate them. And the children, as we saw last week, represent the marginal, the vulnerable, those without societal power or status, not just the young, but the poor and the blind and the lame and the possessed and the lepers, and the Gentiles, and the women. And Jesus demonstrates love is perfect only when it is comprehensive. Love is perfect when it embraces not just those we like, not just our friends or our immediate family, or even our church, I suppose, but when they embrace all sorts and conditions of people. Uh, And that points us forward to the final day when the last will be first. John, in his gospel, quotes Jesus' teaching that becoming like a little child presupposes the new birth. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, brings us to life as little children within the family of God Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's the placing of the text. And the setting of the text is in verse 17. As Jesus was proceeding on his way. That's a better way of translating the sense. Because he's doing more than going on a journey. He's on the way somewhere. He's going towards a destination. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross. The cross is his destination. So we're to read the story like this. While he's on the way to the cross, that is the place of his self-offering, his self-substitution, his self-immolation, sacrifice for his people. A man ran up to him. The man will be described as rich, that is, as having many possessions. Because of his wealth, he holds a certain status and a certain sense of entitlement. He ran up to Jesus. That's a good sign. Most people of that social standing would not run in public. Gentlemen do not run. Apparently, you don't even run to catch a bus if you're a gentleman. And I've tried to demonstrate that in practice. So he ran up to Jesus and perhaps shows his humility, certainly his eagerness. 
He knelt before him. That shows you his reverence for Jesus. And he asked him. That shows his respect for Jesus. He is a man who would belong to the first rank of society. Just looking at this man, observing his approach to Jesus, we might think him to be a suitable, even a desirable candidate for the kingdom of God. In the society of Jesus' day, in Jewish society, the idea that wealth was a mark of God's blessing was widely held. Rabbis, famous rabbis like Rabbi Hillel and Akiba, who rose from obscurity and poverty to wealth and influence, were commended and lauded by the community at large. This man would be very comfortable in his wealth, thinking that it indicated the blessing of God upon him. Well, into that context then, Jesus speaks. The man comes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we listen to Jesus' answer, we find him, first of all, speaking about God's goodness. It's disruptive, isn't it? As, as you read those words, here's this man coming with, with an eager question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man appears to be on a serious spiritual search for eternal life. Even asking about eternal life indicates that he'd already discovered that despite his wealth, ordinary temporal life did not finally and fully satisfy He wants eternal life because he knows that in spite of all that he has, one day he will have to leave all that he has. He wants life that is eternal. That's a good thing. But then there's this disjunction. Jesus does not answer him the way we might think he would answer the man. Why do you call me good? He's not questioning the man's sincerity. Rather, he's stopping the man up short and making the man think, giving him food for thought. The key phrase here is Jesus filling out of the words. He says this, no one is good but God alone. No one is good but God alone. Now, we have to take this language of Jesus, and we are to see it in the background of the revelation, the entire light of revelation that's given to us in Holy Scripture. And in that regard, then, we are to understand that this that Jesus is speaking about when he says God alone is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that goodness is essential to godness. Goodness is essential to the triune God. He is by nature good. When God promised Moses, you remember, that he would make all of his goodness pass before him. Moses looks and he sees his mercy and his grace, his long-suffering and truth and faithfulness and justice and holiness. The goodness of God is a comprehensive attribute that contains all kinds of other things. 
that are expressions of God's goodness. God is good in himself. And he does not derive that goodness from any other source. Whatever goodness there is in the elect angels, whatever good there was in Adam in his state of innocence, and there was, if there is any good person saved by grace, or any good in the saints in heaven who are perfected, all of that goodness is all from God and has God as its source. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And we must also say that we as creatures do not have any good of ourselves, but only what we receive from Him. So we can say about God, God is the summum bonum, the chief and supreme good, the sum and substance of good. And only God, therefore, can make us happy, for He is the Father of mercies. He's the fount of all goodness. He is the source of all happiness. Now, when we think of the goodness of God, we have to say there is nothing but goodness in God. No evil, no iniquity, nothing hidden, no dark side yet to be revealed. He's infinitely good. He's eternally good. He's immutably good. That means he never stops being good. And the one who's saying this, Jesus, the one who's uttering these words, there is none good but God, is God's own and only begotten Son, as Thomas Aquinas puts it. He has taken on and been united to human nature, a human nature. And he cannot cease to be goodness, the goodness he is and has always been, the goodness that is common to him and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave that behind him when he assumes human nature. He brings that with him. When he assumes our human nature, he does so without relinquishing or altering his eternal relation to the Father and the Spirit and the goodness that he is. He remains the one he's always been, the one the Father says, this is my beloved Son. When we think of Jesus, we remind ourselves that we cannot look at the man Jesus Christ without doing what we call partitive exegesis, without reminding ourselves of the one we're looking at, who is God the Son, is both God the Son, God, and human. And that his divine and human natures are united in the person that he is, the Son of God. He has a rational soul like you, a human body like you, And these are compatible, in him they are compatible, although they're distinct from his divine nature, which is perfect. So keep that in mind as you read Jesus' words. No one is good but God alone. His divine nature is greater than his human nature. Although his human nature is sinless and ours isn't, 
Nonetheless, it is a sinless human nature, a real human nature like yours, only sinless. These two natures of his are asymmetrical. The divine is greater than the human. It's in his human nature that he learns obedience through the things that he suffers. It's in his human nature that he humbles himself to obey the Father, even to the point of death, death on the cross. It's in his human nature that Jesus shows humility. His humility is entirely compatible with his supreme goodness. But we must never, we must never posit humility of his divine nature, only of his human nature. The Son of God subsists in two distinct, unmixed natures. And these two natures belong to the one person, and that person subsists in them as the goodness he is, the goodness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christopher Holmes, in one of his books, puts it like this, God the Father alone is good, yes, because the Father has his being from no one, whereas the Son has his being and thus his goodness from him, the Father. But he has it as the Son. The Lord Jesus has his goodness from the Father alone and the Father from himself alone. That's what we mean when we talk about the Son being begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So even in his incarnate state, here is this man, Jesus, to whom the children are running, and this young man comes and runs to see him. In his incarnate state, in his humiliation, the Son remains unchangeably good, even as he says the words, God alone is good. In his earthly mission, as a human being, he pursues the good with the Father and the Spirit, but in a human way. The whole human life of Christ is good. In his human life, we see what goodness, the goodness common to the Trinity, looks like in the flesh of a human being. So Jesus draws this man's attention to God's goodness. What he's doing is he's exposing the man's definition of goodness. When the man came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, he was being polite. But this man's idea of goodness, as we'll see, is a goodness that we as humans can earn or achieve for ourselves. And so Jesus turns the man's attention to his father as the supreme good, and then... And only then does he turn the man's attention to God's commandments. Look how he does that. Verse 18. He says, you know the commandments. They're straightforward. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. These things are straightforward. 
except hard to obey. But as uh, someone has written, the difficulty lies not in understanding them, but in doing them. They are the answer to the question about eternal life, actually. What can I do to inherit eternal life? These commandments are the answer. Not because someone can keep them and earn eternal life, but because if he honestly tries to keep them, he or she will be brought to recognize their bankruptcy and be prepared to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now you know that the Ten Commandments fall into two tables. The first table is our duty towards God, and the second table is our duty towards others. Do you notice that Jesus quotes from the second table of the law? Why does he do that? Not because the second table, my duty to other people, is more important than my duty to God. The opposite, in fact. But because obedience to the second table of the law is how we demonstrate our obedience to the first table. How do I know that you actually love God? How do I know that I actually love God and make him first in my life? How does that become visible? Well, it becomes visible in how we keep the second table of the law. The first table has to do with what's in here and what's in here. You can't really, you can talk about it, but you know that words can be cheap. So how do I know that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, you should be able to see that in the way that I behave. Now, it's at this point then that we see the man's response. And his response is quite shallow, almost unself-aware. He said to him, verse 20, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. It's a salutary statement. It tells us that he had never really understood the commandments. He had never, ever really taken them seriously. The rabbis believed that people possessed the ability to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. They seriously spoke to and taught about people who had been able to keep the whole of the law from A to Z. And this man had imbibed that contemporary theology. I have kept these from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him. He didn't live love what he saw. He wasn't drawn to the man in that sense. No, this is a love that is given that does not take account of the worthiness or the unworthiness of the object. He set his love upon him. It's the love that shows itself 
in the effort to help or to give itself to the object. This is the kind of love we're to have for one another. It's a love that does not necessarily spare our friend's feelings because the subject matter is far too important for that. There are things we have to talk about with one another sometimes, and we have to not spare the feelings of our friend because the subject matter is far too important, more important than feelings. Jesus has to say something to this man which sums up the seriousness of the matter. Something that is both stern on the one hand and gracious. He needs this young man to see the seriousness of his condition and his ultimate need. This man needed to know that he was self-deceived before he could be called to repentance. He needed to have this pointed out so that he might turn to his only hope in life and death. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, we can extrapolate from this that Jesus, or Christian people generally, are anti-wealth or anti-rich people. Jesus was ministered to by wealthy women who underwrote his disciples and his own ministry throughout his earthly career. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, remember? This is something far more serious than than the issue of wealth. Jesus is calling this man to a complete reorientation of his life and his circumstances. He's calling this man to a renunciation that would lead to a far better end for him. What was it the man lacked? He lacked obedience to the first commandment. He did not have a single-hearted devotion to God. And the fact that he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving, a little bit angry, because he had many possessions, shows you that he put his wealth before God. Jesus exposes the idol in his heart. And then that's, that becomes the basis, the text, if you will, for the rest of the section in which he talks to these people, his disciples, in this fashion. How difficult it is, he says, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, say nobody with wealth can enter the kingdom of God, but he makes a statement that it is difficult for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, you remember Jesus says, you cannot serve God 
and mammon. Wealth becomes a god of itself. We say sometimes that the gods of our present generation are money, sex, and power. The difficulty with wealth is that trust in wealth excludes trust in God. Now, the problem with the rich young man is this. He needs to let go of the obstacle that stops his commitment to God in full trust. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. That, that will be sufficient for you. If you only knew who I was, follow me. And while you lose everything in this life, in the life to come, you will have so much more by following me. Follow me. That's where he should have come to. Trust in me completely, Jesus is saying. Abandon everything that keeps you back from following me. Be dependent on me. But to be dependent on Jesus takes trust, simple trust. But that was too much to ask for this young man, and he goes away. Now, when you read those verses, when you read verse 23, and you hear Jesus say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, don't think that that doesn't apply to you because you're not wealthy. Very easy for us to do that. Well, that's not me. He's not talking about me now. I can sit back and I can forget what Liam's going to say next and what Jesus said then. Literally, Jesus says, how hard it is for those who have things to enter the kingdom of God. We often think of things, of course, in material terms. A car, a bike, squash racket, golf clubs, or whatever. But we can think of them in non-material terms, an intellect, a personality, talents, anything that occupies first place in our lives. Jesus said it's easier to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A camel, the largest animal in Palestine. A needle, the smallest thing they could imagine. Aperture, you could imagine. It's a totally ridiculous image that Jesus is painting here. But what he's trying to communicate is to do this is to attempt the impossible in human terms. The impossible. He's saying it's impossible for a man or a woman to work or worm their way into the kingdom of God while they're holding on to other things, whatever they are. You can't be independent and dependent at the same time. Jesus is speaking in absolute terms in order all the more to impress upon the minds of the disciples that salvation from start to finish is not a human achievement. It's a supernatural thing. It's a work of God from beginning to end. So in verse 27, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's too hard for you if you're wealthy, as it were, to come to the kingdom of God or bringing all these other things that you're holding on to in your life, impossible for you to enter into the kingdom of God, but it is not impossible for God to bring you kicking and screaming through the eye of the needle into the kingdom of God. Nothing is impossible with God. He is able to save to the uttermost, the uttermost, 
the most determined and relentless materialists. God does that. He can call and save even the self-righteous, arch-persecutor like Saul of Tarsus, and turn him into an apostle of Jesus Christ. There is no limit to God's saving grace. But when God saves a person, what does he do? He brings them to the place of trust, the place where we realize that we can contribute nothing to this relationship with God. We, we have nothing of, our, of ourselves to recommend ourselves except the sheer helplessness and hopelessness that is our life. Salvation is a gift, a gift of God. And those who receive it must receive it as a gift, not trying to exchange money for it or, or substance with it, taking it with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. But there's one last question to be asked of the text. And it's implied in Jesus, in Peter's words, rather, in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. That's a fair question. And Jesus answers it in verses 29 to 31. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Think what you have. Access to the throne of grace any hour of any day, every day, for the rest of your life. Illumination by the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God, to be able to follow where the Word of God is taking you, and to know why you're here, and who has made you, and where you're going. To have the peace of God that stabilizes our hearts and our minds when all around is choppy water and trouble brews to be at peace within ourselves. To enjoy our new family, the siblings that we have in Christ, the household of faith, the Father's family. To have in prospect the return and great glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To transform these dying bodies into eternal bodies and to place us in a new heaven and new earth. Peter's asking, what about us? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? There's nothing else greater, more glorious than this. There is such an utter disproportion here between the sacrifices made and the glory that is being prepared for us. There, there is no limit to the generosity of the Master. 
He recognizes the smallest, teeny, tiniest sacrifice we make and rewards it with such a glorious bounty in glory that far outweighs it all. And he even deigns to use those rewards as an incentive for us to keep going as a means to humble us. Not even the vainest among us can pretend that our good deeds deserve to be rewarded with a throne in glory beside Christ. We are debtors to God's mercy. The talk of merit is out of the question. And at the end of it, you know where he brings us. He brings us to think of eternal life. In the age to come, eternal life. There it is. That's what the boy came looking for. That's what he ran away from. That's what he gave up. Jesus says to you, this is what you have. Eternal life. This was a person who belonged to the stratosphere of society. He was wealthy. But Jesus says, many who are first here will be last there. And the last here will be first there. So it doesn't matter how inconsequential you feel yourself to be. It doesn't matter how weak and uh, small you perceive yourself to be. In Jesus' terms, you are the wealthy ones. You are the ones who have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray tonight that you would help us to rejoice in this great message of eternal life in our Savior, Jesus. You called us out of darkness into light, from death to life. And even in our death, Lord, we will see you face to face. And at the resurrection, we will be one again as our souls are reunited to our bodies in that new heaven and new earth. Hasten that day, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.